the way I do business, the way I network is I just try and be a cool guy. That's it. You know, this has happened to me at least five times where I've just started a conversation with someone because I thought we had something in common. And then a couple months later, you know, we're working on the project together. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fury Presents. In this episode, I talked to Eddie Kwan, aka Warren Weakness. Eddie left his comfy investment banking job to start the millennial nomad lifestyle and has never looked back. He now lives a comfy life in a low-cost country while still doing high-paying jobs and moving in the right circles on Twitter. In this episode, you'll learn the pros and cons of running an Anon account. My name is Yannick, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. All right, Eddie, a lot of people know you as Warren Weakness. Tell us a little bit about yourself so we know who you are. Basically, I used to be a very like normal nine-to-fiver. No offense to nine-to-fivers, nothing wrong with that. But I had a corporate job in the financial space, specifically in corporate bankruptcy, I guess is what you would call it in other countries. In Australia, uh, where I'm from, it's called insolvency. So I was in that world for about five, six years, something like that. You know, I went to business school and everything, very just sort of like normal life. Like my dream when I was going through business school was to get a very prestigious job, you know, on Wall Street at one of the big banks. Like that was my dream. Seriously, that was like my entire life. And then I started working because when I was in university, all I wanted to do was make money and get like a really cool job. So my friends and my family would be proud of me. I got a job working at, you know, one of the top, the big four accounting firms and It was cool. Like for the first six months, I felt like I was at the top of the world, really, because that had been my goal for like my entire university time. But what I quickly realized after about six to 12 months at the office was the same issue I had when I was in school. I don't like authority. I don't like being told what to do. And I'm exaggerating here, I guess, but I felt being in the office environment to a certain degree, you, you are treated like a child. Like there's rules, there's regulations. You can't just offend people. If you don't get along with the guy in the next cubicle, you can't just be out there. You have to be cognizant of the fact that you're in a work environment, you're in a team environment. It's essentially like the playground and people play games to sort of like climb that ladder. For example, like it was either the first or second salary review I had. I was very proud because I had billed all these hours. I had made my firm a lot of money. And the one criticism they had for me was that, oh, you're not getting along with all the other bosses in your department. You need to do a better job of that. And that really angered me because I was like, well, I've literally made you guys hundreds of thousands of dollars with the time I've spent and on this with a crappy fixed salary. And the one criticism you have is that I'm not making enough small chat in the coffee room. Like literally, that's what they said. So all those little things started to hit me and uh, I went on a little holiday in Malaysia. And I met this hippie, basically, who had the complete opposite path of me. Instead of going to university, he had like sold his car and went to Taiwan with his girlfriend to teach English. And then they volunteered at the hospital. And it just seemed like such an adventurous life. And so I had a plan. When you become an accountant in Australia, you have to go through what's called the um, Chartered Accountant Institute. It's kind of like what they call the CPA. It's like a bar for lawyers, but it's for accountants. And it's a very difficult qualification. But the cool thing about the firm I worked at was if you complete the certification with the firm and you stay for 12 more months after you complete it, 
they pay for everything. And it's a very expensive certification. So I thought, all right, I'm going to do 12 months after I finish and I'm going to quit. And I'm going to travel for like six months and then I'll come back. I did exactly that. Literally, as soon as 12 months was up, I, I handed in my resignation letter and I bought a 12-month ticket to go around the world with the plan to like, at the end of the 12 months, you know, move to London or move to New York or one of the financial centers of the world. But like basically six months into that trip, I basically just became like a full-on hippie. And I was very, very anti-corporate, anti-doing it the normal way. You realized the amount of freedom you had. And then you were like, why ever would I go back? Exactly. So that was when I discovered online business. It was very new back then. Like there wasn't much in it back then. This is about 2013 or something. All the rage back then was building like niche blogs and trying to rank on Google and make money through affiliate links. So like you would write a blog post reviewing an article, hoping someone would click that link and buy it through your link and then you'd make some money. So I tried doing that and I failed miserably. I was doing a bunch of shit back then. Like I was teaching English part-time, doing the blogging thing. I also did some writing on Fiverr, which is just horrible. I, I can't believe I did that. I did that for like three months. But I don't regret it because just doing that for a couple of months and seeing money coming to my bank account without me having to leave the house was an absolute light bulb in my head. You know, we're in 2021 online business. It's a lot more common now. Back then, 2013, 2014, it was just not common, especially to someone like me who was told you have to go to university, you have to get a job. I guess the only way you can make money to get a real job in the real world. To be able to like make an income in the comfort of your home on the computer, it was just mind blowing to me. And so after six months, you actually you basically decide I'm not going back to corporate life. Where were you back then? And so you started with Fiverr, but how did you transition to you know getting other sorts of income? Well, actually, there's a funny story to this. After the Fiverr thing, I found this blog article that talked about writing erotic short stories and selling erotic short stories on Amazon. So I did that for like three to six months, which I tweeted about the other day, and it got a pretty funny response. You wrote the story and published it on Amazon, or somebody else published it, or you did? Yeah, so basically, I was desperate to make money online. I didn't have any skills, but one thing I do know how to do, because in my role in corporate bankruptcy, there's a lot of business writing involved. You have to write a lot of long reports. So I knew I could write. And I knew I wanted to do something in the online space within writing. I just didn't know like what that was. Going down a rabbit hole of Googling, I discovered this blog post. There's a great blog called 30daystox.com. It's a really, really good blog about online business. Back then, he wrote about this book he read. It's got a really tacky name, like the six-figure erotica author or something like that. And he basically said, you know, you can make a lot of money writing erotica stories if you know how to do the research. So I bought that book and immediately applied it. It's very much like Google. Like you have to find keywords and then write stories around those keywords because the keywords reflect what the customers are trying to look for. And because it's erotica, it's basically middle-aged women who read these types of books. And the idea is that they buy these short stories that cost like two, three dollars, and it takes them 10, 20 minutes to read. And the idea is that once you accumulate a catalog, you start to get a name for yourself. And then you start to make some real money. But it just never happened for me because, A, I didn't like the idea of sitting down at my desk and imagining sexy situations where housewives get into dirty encounters. I found that really boring and just not good for my mental health. And I didn't make much. How much did you make? I think overall I made something like 
500 US over a couple of months. And I became a best-selling author in India and the United Kingdom, which is something I like to brag about. I mean, I'm sure you know uh, JK, JK Molina. I was basically talking to him in private, and he was like, dude, you got to start tweeting about your uh, background in erotica short story writing. So here I am. Well, you wrote three books, The Naughty Librarian, The Synthesis Center, and... No, I wrote something like 20 to 30 short stories. It's very formulaic. You have to first research whatever the theme is at the time. There's always popular themes. So when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, there was a ton of like people who wrote about that particular type of theme. You know, the rich guy with the young girl. And so basically, from what I know about the erotica industry, there's always some sort of theme and it gets dirtier as the industry grows. So yeah, I was doing that for like two, three months, reading erotica stories to study like the storytelling elements and how to reverse engineer that with my own stories. It just wasn't fun, man. Like even if you're making a ton of money, I don't know if I would want to do that. I don't think it's good for my mental health. I saw you transition away from those books. But what did you do after that? So I got lucky. I've been in contact with a lot of my former colleagues. And one of them decided, you know, my old boss, who was only a manager when I quit, he became like a boss boss, a partner at his own firm. And he started hiring me to do some uh, business writing for him. His firm often gets hired to do, for example, like what we call lending reviews. A bank customer will ask for, you know, more money and they need to like assess if the business has the cash flow to pay off whatever the loan is they'll outsource that report to accountants. And then so he basically just gave me a bit of work in that realm. I've been doing that for a while and I'm slowly like winding that down. And now I write emails for personal brands now. I forgot to mention in that six to 12 month phase when I was doing erotica writing and Fiverr and et cetera, et cetera, I had somehow accidentally stumbled upon copywriting, which if listeners don't know, copywriting is basically often described as salesmanship in print, but I just think of it as persuasive writing. So any sort of writing with an intention to persuade or convince the reader to take a particular action, that to me is copywriting. And when I discovered that, basically, I was like, okay, this is it. This is what I'm going to be doing. Along the way, in 2018, you started your Twitter account. Were you still doing the lending stuff? Yeah. So that's what I was doing basically full-time, remotely, which is cool. And then I discovered Lawrence King. Lawrence had a Twitter growth product back then, and it was just launched, I think. He's got like 40,000 followers now, but he only had like 700 followers at the time. And so I got his product and I've discovered, you know, there's a way where you can grow and monetize a social media account, in this case, Twitter. I generally don't like social media, but Twitter is different, I thought, because, you know, it's word based, you know, you're writing and you're reading, you know, I can handle that. And yeah, Lawrence was like, basically like, yeah, you can, you know, build a business on Twitter, which still sounded crazy to me. So I thought, all right, the first challenge I need before I, I make any money from this is to actually grow an account. And that's when I opened up, you know, at War on Weakness handle. Why did you decide to create an Anon account? If you met me in real life, you'd find that I'm a pretty like low key guy. For example, I hate taking selfies. I don't post photographs online, really. My girlfriend thinks I'm like a hateful guy because I don't like to smile and post on photographs. So I'm just very uncomfortable with the idea of like having my face and my name out there. It's really more of a, um, an irrational discomfort for me. That's the only reason. The last thing I would want is like my auntie accidentally finding my social media account. She's like, what are you doing writing on this 
platform Twitter under the name of War on Weakness. It just doesn't add up. When you have an Anon account, it's weird. I don't know if any if Anon accounts will admit this, but to me, it's kind of like you're playing a certain character online. That's not to say you're not authentic. You can be authentic, but there is a degree where you're playing a certain role, even if you're not intentionally doing it. I think because maybe you say something really like edgy, right? And then your followers give you a lot of engagement. I think subliminally your brain likes that. And so it's going to double down on that. And then you start playing this character online. And there's something that's addictive about that. And I think a lot of Anon accounts don't really talk about that. But to me, that's definitely a bit of an appeal. I bought an Anon account. I don't know how long ago. It has like 74,000 followers or something like that. I actually also have that feeling that when I'm behind that account, I imagine, you know, being different. And I, you know, I put a different hat on my uh, hat. Yeah. I like that analogy, putting a different hat. That, that, that's how I feel. Even though like most of the tweets that I write like comes from like what I'm thinking and feeling at the time, it's, and it is real, but I don't know, I feel the character online war and weakness is just, I see it as a separate person, almost. It's weird. Yeah, I think it has the added benefit. I spoke to Create 24-7, uh, the art of creation a while back, and he has this really tuned out, you know, really his branding is like, I think, fantastic as an Anon account. And I think that's also what's appealing, I guess, to his audience is that, you know, his his profile picture, his profile, his tweets, it just, it's all packaged so nicely that you just want to follow an account like that. I think that's really powerful of being an Anon account, being able to create like a, something in the heads of people. Yeah, yeah. And I think this debate will go on forever, I think, but... There are people who think Anon accounts are harder to grow than like a personal account. I don't think that's true. You don't think that's true? Why do you say that? I don't think it's harder to grow because, you know, you can probably be more outspoken and more provoking. You know, they'll get you more engagement and more followers. It's easier for you to choose like a direction and just it if it doesn't work. But what is harder is, I think, to get people to buy something from you. You know, I've tried with that that other account of mine to get people to buy stuff, and that just does not work. Not as good as as I hoped, at least. So yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I think it's because it's harder to build trust as an Anon account, right? And I think also people follow you based on your ideas, whereas when you're a personal account, you have your face out there and you start expressing parts of your personality. It just creates an extra layer of authenticity that people really connect with. But you can do that too as an add-on account. Like you can tweet about, you know, a certain part of your personality. Like for example, I mean, he's not add-on, but Jose, Jose Rosado, if you follow him, it's like a little inside joke with his followers. He loves mangoes. It's kind of like part of his brand, right? And you can easily just do that as an add-on account. You can talk about a particular topic and just keep talking about that topic. And eventually your followers will, you know, be drawn to that. You transitioned from an Anon account to like the real Eddie. Why did you do that? Why did you make that jump? It's related to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago about when you're playing that character, right? And I think because I had been writing for 12 months through the War on Weakness account, I just wanted to be close to my followers, I guess, in a way. So because when you're writing every day, it is hard. Like I said, you are in a sense a character. It's hard to separate that character from who you are. Because I like to think that the tweets I write, they are authentic. They are reflections from my life experience and from things I read and so forth. By, I think, removing that layer where I had the Kurt Russell picture and putting my real face out there, 
it helped me refine like my thoughts and my writings. Back then, that was, I don't know, six months ago, maybe longer. You had also a couple of book summaries. That's something I think you moved away from because I don't see that anymore on your profile. What happened there? Basically, there was a period where I was like doing a lot of selling and I wanted to take a step back from that and just focus on like providing value and growing my account. So I'm still promoting that, the Bolt, the, the book. I'm still promoting it through my email list. I just don't sell as much as I used to on the timeline. I'm very inconsistent with selling, which I know a lot of like online business gurus will laugh at. But uh, I think the problem with me, with my account, is that I have a hard time separating, you know, the personal brand from like a personal account. So like some people are very good at this where they're like, okay, I create this Twitter account. It's brand. I'm using it purely to monetize. Whereas, you know, yes, that is true for me, but also... I also treat my account as more like a personal account where I just I'm just really reflecting my thoughts and I'm using it not just to make money and network, but also as a personal way for me to express myself and to just, you know, deal with all the various thoughts that I have floating in my head. You know, it's a way for me to write those thoughts down and get it out there and off my chest. Was it also because you moved to like a more high ticket item? Like the email writing is like a thousand dollars? Yeah, so I definitely want to uh, start promoting myself as the email guy. There's definitely going to be a change in the content I'm putting out rather than just, you know, just self-development stuff, which is what I, I'm personally like to talk about. I'm going to start putting out content that attracts my ideal client, which is, by the way, that's a really good tip for people who are trying to sell a high-ticket service on Twitter. You want to make sure that you're having a balance of content that you're putting out there. So you moved away from your Anon account, moved to Addy. What kind of differences did you see? Did you see a change in like growth or a, a stall in growth? Or what did you see happen? So in the short term, there's definitely a stall in growth. Definitely. Because people don't read tweets. They react to them, which is a different thing. So when you're seeing tweets populate on your timeline, you may not realize this, but a lot of times you're just sort of like reacting to that account. So if you're used to seeing a particular type of tweet come from a specific account, and maybe it's like just feel-good platitudes, you're always going to click like and retweet just by virtue of seeing that person's profile pic and the content. Whereas when you change the profile picture, people don't know how to react. Even though they see the same words, they see the same at warrant weakness, they're not really reading that. If the AV, the profile pic changes... You know, that's an extra layer of thinking they have to do. And so rather than like stopping and like, oh, who is this? They might just keep scrolling. Unless you're writing a tweet that's super controversial. That's when people are like, oh, who is this? I need to check who this person. That's why being controversial and being polarizing is a really good growth strategy because it breaks the pattern. Because most people are just scrolling. They're literally just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Oh, this one. Scrolling, 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 scrolling. Oh, this one. And so if you're not interrupting that pattern in a way that makes them stop scrolling and click through to your profile, they're just going to keep scrolling. So I think because I don't tweet very controversial content. And so when I changed my profile pic, I think people were just that no idea who I was. Like I remember one time I changed my profile pic early. It was like two months after I changed it. One of the guys who was following me, I think he either DM me or he left a comment like, oh, I had no idea this was war and weakness. And so that's when I realized like people just don't 
really think they're just reacting to content and to accounts they're used to seeing. And so when you change your name and your AV, they're just going to like forget you. Yeah. What I've seen happen when people change their profile pics is that you just, yeah, you don't know who this is. So either you just keep scrolling, you don't know who is this on my timeline. I don't know him. Or you really have to investigate again. I know Jose changed this profile picture you did. I know Wise Connector did. And every time people change their profile pic, you have to recalibrate. And it also it's also a really a mindset thing. You, you have to rethink who is this guy. And it's really also branding, you know, because like the old, your old like uh, movie star guy, that was just, you know, you had a, it's, it had a certain feeling to it. You get a certain response to that profile picture connected to what you were tweeting. So that was really, it was like a symbiosis between the two and then you have to recalibrate when people change their profile pic then you think oh, okay oh it's just a different vibe even though you tweet like the same yeah recalibrate is probably the perfect word to capture that you're 100 right and i think when i had just war on weakness and that profile pic of uh kurt russell was the actor you're thinking of and it's not just kurt russell it's his character from the movie escape from new york and the character's name is Snake Plissken. And Snake Plissken was kind of like this real badass, like lone warrior guy. And I think that was just more consistent with the word war on weakness. Yeah. Whereas now, like people see my face and, you know, I don't look like a dangerous guy. You know, I'm very low key. You know what I mean? And especially with the pick right now, it doesn't scream like lone warrior. It's more intellectual, I think. <laughs> I think so anyway. And like you said, it's a pattern interrupt and it forces people to recalibrate and readjust to your new brand. I mean, it's like if Apple changed their symbol tomorrow, it would confuse the shit out of everyone. Like if they just put like a different color Apple as their symbol, it would just confuse the shit out of people. So that's when you change your profile pic and you change your name on Twitter, it's kind of like a mini version of that. And so you saw like a stalling growth for like a while and then what happened? Yeah, for a couple months. I was getting really, really bad engagement. And to confuse people even more, I kept changing it. Like I just kept, that's how I am. I don't know. Um, you know, I kept changing the picture. I had a different picture of myself initially, and it was a photo I took from my phone. And so the quality wasn't very good. And I found this old picture, like that a photographer friend of mine had taken of me, and I decided to put that up. And so I went through like four or five different changes. There was like a two-week period where I, instead of, Kurt Russell, I had a photo of Ryu from Street Fighter as my profile pic, and that confused people. And I've just been going through various reiterations of my profile. And did you see also changes in growth based on what profile picture you used? I have to be honest, the best growth I've ever had was when I was Kurt Russell. But the thing is, like I said, my goals have changed. Like my initial goal when I started the account. I didn't really think about it, right? I just wanted to get a ton of followers. That's how people are when you're new on Twitter. You're like, oh, I just want to get as many followers as possible. Now, I don't really care as much because my goal is to get more clients for my copywriting business. And you don't need hundreds of thousands of followers to do that. You just need a handful of people you can help. But at the same time, I also like, as I said, I also enjoy writing about self-development you know, from a personal standpoint. And, you know, when you talk about self-development, you're going to grow very quickly because that's a very broad topic that a lot of Twitter users cling to. 
Yeah. And if you could do it all over, would you again start like a Anon account and then switch to like a, a normal version or how would you do it? That's a great question. I think it depends on what I was trying to do. Like if my initial goal at the onset was just to sell high ticket services, no, I wouldn't go Anon. I would stick to a personal account because it's easier to build trust and credibility that way. And I wouldn't even go for follow growth. I would just pick a very targeted niche and just engage with that niche. And that's all I would do. But if my goal was to build a more sort of like semi-passive income source where I'm just using the account to sell digital products, like Gumroad products, I would go Anon and I would shamelessly, shamelessly write engagement-friendly tweets. But like I said before, I have a hard time separating my account from like my personal thoughts. And I know a lot of people don't have this problem. Like they'll just gladly use your account to post whatever content that gets engagement. Cool. And so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is in what circles you move and how you get into those circles. Because I know you're on Wizard of Ecom's Utopia. Utopia, yeah. And you can book your email uh, writing by Utopia. You also have... I don't know how it exactly works, but you're at least you're you help like art of creation in his new masterclass community. So I think it's interesting for a lot of people to, you know, run us through how you actually got there, you know, how you connected with people, how you, you know, got on those websites, how you, you know, offered your stuff. Okay, this is a very that's a great topic. A very nuanced topic as well, actually. So at the beginning of my Twitter journey, halfway through, sorry, there was a guide i released the twitter growth guide which i don't really promote anymore it's called twitter rocket growth blueprint and in that guide i talk about using the strategy which i'm pretty sure i came up with it but i could be wrong but it's i call it the snipe list method and i created that idea thinking that people would you know understand me clearly but they obviously didn't so the concept is this when you're starting an account no one is seeing your tweets because you have no followers. And so the best way to get more exposure to your account is to leverage big account traffic. So if a big account tweets a tweet that's getting a lot of engagement, that means a lot of people are looking at that tweet. And not only are they looking at the tweet, they're reading the comments below the tweet. And so if you can write a great comment, the people who follow that big account will see your comment. And if they like it, they might follow you. And so when I wrote about that technique, the idea is, I tried to explain it as clear as possible, but obviously I failed. The idea is that when you leave a comment under a tweet, it should add value to that tweet. Not be like, hey, great, dude, well, 100%, uh, blah, blah. Yeah, or or some people just straight up rewrite the tweet. Which is actually insulting. Which is very insulting, yeah, because people aren't stupid. When they read a comment that's obviously written with the intention to get engagement people can sense your full shit they can sense the selfish intention behind that comment whereas the right way to do it and this is how i did it when i was growing is to just be sincere if there's a tweet that you can't add value to it's just a perfect tweet don't say anything okay but if there's some room for you to either add an additional thought or write something that opens up a different conversation that leads to a different conversation, then do it. But otherwise, don't comment just for the sake of commenting. Like, actually do it in a way where you're trying to have a conversation with 
that tweet. So if a big account tweets something, think of your comment as an extension to that conversation. Think of the original tweet as the beginning of the conversation and you're just continuing the conversation. But if you're just doing it just to get engagement, you're going to look bad and you might even risk getting blocked. And so that's how I did it. I basically just, um, you know, commented on a lot of people's accounts. And here's the other thing, like DM people, man. If, if someone writes a tweet that really gets, you know, changes the perspective in your mind or makes you think about something that you hadn't thought about before, send that person a DM and just start a conversation. And say, hey, I, I really love that tweet. It made me think of this experience that I had, blah, 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 blah. And then what you'll find is that a lot of, this is the beauty of Twitter, a lot of these big accounts, they're just normal people. They're just regular people. And if you're starting an interesting conversation with them through the DMs, they're going to want to continue that conversation. But the problem is a lot of people on Twitter, the way they network is they try and be super professional or they're just straight up socially retarded. Like they'll DM you. I get this all the time. People DM me with like their entire life story, like a 10 page paragraph of like, oh, I went through this, blah, 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 I need your help. Can you help me with this? And they ask me all these questions. And it's like, I'm not here to consult you for free, man. You know, I, I have things to do in my life. But if you just start a conversation, conversation that you're both getting value of, that conversation could last for hours. That's happened to me before where I just, you know, another account DM me or I DM them and we're just having a conversation. Like we just started talking at a coffee shop, you know, a real life conversation with no agenda whatsoever. And then what happens is a month later, that account will be like, oh, Eddie, he's a cool guy. And I know that he's a copywriter. So, and I need a copywriter for this project. Maybe I'll reach out to him. And was that what happened to with? That's how it happens with basically all my connections. They'll reach out to me and they'll go, oh, hey, Eddie, you know, I've got this project coming up. Would you like to participate in it? And the only reason I get those invitations is because of that back and forth I have with them that started a couple of months ago where there was no agenda whatsoever, you know, and just be a cool dude. Like there's a lot of these, I won't reveal any names, but a lot of these big accounts, sometimes they'll send me a message asking me for advice that could be business or non-business related. And I'll give them all the value I can, you know, just because I believe in karma. Like I do believe on Twitter, you have to believe in karma. Like if you give out value and you're known as a guy who's helpful and useful, trust me, it's going to come back to you. Because most people are not like that. Most people are, have an agenda in mind, and they will approach you with that agenda in mind. And I think, you know, I'm not a networking pro or anything, but I think that's a bad way to do business. The way I do business, the way I network, is I just try and be a cool guy. That's it. You know, this has happened to me at least five times where I've just started a conversation with someone because I thought we had something in common. And then a couple months later, you know, we're working on the project together. I can think of at least three or four opportunities that's happened that way. Nice. Let's talk a little bit about more about like your Twitter growth. Like you started a couple of years ago. You started with War and Weakness. How did you get like your first thousand followers and then, you know, up to 10,000? Okay. So the very first thousand followers was very difficult. Like I said, you have to comment a lot, but not in a way that's where you're trying to just comment for the sake of commenting. Just be a cool guy, seriously, and be, and be patient. You have to be patient because it took me, I think it took me like two months, two, three months to get my first thousand followers, which is very difficult. And here's what's going to happen. After a couple of months, you'll start meeting people. You'll start meeting people who joined the Twitter game around the same time you did. So there's a lot of accounts. Like, for example, Dan Co. Dan and I, I think 
Dan I connected, I think, when he had like twelve to fourteen thousand followers, and I had around the same. And now he's like at thirty five or something like that, and I'm at twenty six or something. And he's someone that I've kept in touch with the entire journey. And so when you're at the beginning of your Twitter journey from zero to a thousand, you're going to meet like five to ten of the people who are in around the same who entered the Twitter game around the same time you did. And you're going to naturally figure out who you like and who you don't like. It's kind of like the first day at school. You know, you've seen this a lot in movies where the new kid at school, he brings in a tray of food and he's and he looks around and there's like 20 tables. There's like the cool kids, the nerds, you know, the popular girls. And, and he's trying to see where he fits in, in that environment. So Twitter is the same way. You're walking in and it's a massive playground and you're like, okay, those are a couple of new kids over there. I'm going to hang out with them. And then eventually one of them becomes the cool kid. One of them, you know what I mean? And you just kind of like move around in those circles. And what happens is after a few months, you're going to start, you know, of the five to 10 people you start with, you know, a couple will drop out and a couple will kind of like keep going. And then you eventually end up sticking together and you grow together. And here's the secret tip that I don't even know if I should even be saying this because it's actually against Twitter terming conditions, but there's a lot of people who form what are called engagement groups, which is when you have an agreement and that agreement varies from group to group where you basically engage with each other's tweets. And so I've done that a few times and there's, you know, pros and cons to those as well. But really, I think the true growth happens is when you start, like I said, going back to the playground analogy, you start forming certain communities and you just naturally engage with each other and people who are new will see that and they'll want to follow the people who you're engaging with. Because what happens is when you follow an account, Twitter automatically populates a handful of accounts that you should also follow. And I think the way the algorithm selects those accounts is based on who that account that you just follow is engaging with. So if I engage a ton, for example, with you, when someone follows you, you know, the chances of Twitter putting me as a suggestive follow is going to be increased significantly if I engage with you a lot. And that's going to naturally happen because, like I said, going again back to the playground analogy, you're going to engage with people who you vibe with. And so you're all naturally going to grow together if you're always engaging with each other's content. Now, the downside to that, though, the downside to that is that you have to spend a lot of time on Twitter for that to happen. And that's another issue that I've been dealing with. Like, I'm experiencing mild Twitter burnout right now. I bet. I bet. I think a lot of people have that from time to time. So let's say you have like 30 minutes a day to grow your account. What would you do? From scratch? If you're starting from scratch? From scratch. Okay. If I was starting from scratch, I would spend 20 minutes of that 30 minutes just commenting. So the first thing you should do is curate your own lists, but don't be an idiot and call that list engagement list or something like that. Because what happens is when you add an account that you like to a list that you call engagement list or snipe list or something like that, they get a notification that says, so-and-so has just added you to an engagement list. <laughs> yeah, or at least hide the list. You can actually... Yeah. Exactly. I actually say that in my guide. Make sure you mark the list as private before you add people and people don't do it. Anyway, so the way you create a list is you find accounts whose content that you drive with. So if you're in the fat loss niche, you're going to want to network with other coaches who are in the fat loss arena. And my advice for that is 
just add people whose content that you like. Don't overthink it. Just if you like the person's content, you're getting a good vibe from that person, add them to the list and read their tweets. Just with no intention, just read their tweets. And if there is a particular tweet that jumps out at you that you want to start a conversation around, leave a comment. But do it in a natural and organic way. And people will start to follow you. You just have to be patient and do it every day for 30 minutes. So you have to be 30 minutes. So I would spend 20 minutes comment, commenting and 10 minutes writing a few tweets. And that's it. And then, you know, once you have a couple of followers and once a couple of tweets resonate with you, start DMing people and uh, build relationships. Yeah, I think a DM should be, and again, I'm not like the pro at networking, but the way I do it is just, I only reach out, DM people who I think I'm going to like in real life. Like I don't do it just just because I want to sell them something or just because I want to sign them on as a client. I might be ignorant for this, but I like to do business with people who I like because I know from my experience in the office, you know, the one thing I hate about the office I told you is because I was basically told you have to like people who you don't like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. So, you know, now that I'm working my own, like why would I want to do that in my own business? Yeah. And so I think there's no right or wrong time to DM someone. If you feel that there's a conversation to be started, start that conversation. I'll give you a little example. One of the biggest accounts in our space is Writing to Riches, Charles, formerly Charles Miller. When Charles had like, I think he didn't have as many. He had like five to 10,000 followers or something like that. I sent him a DM and I only had a few hundred followers back then because he had a typo on his website. And I sent him a DM saying, oh, I love your stuff. Just wanted to point out there's this little typo on your website you want you might want to fix. That's it. I didn't say anything more. And he sent back a message saying, Oh, I really, really appreciate that. I just started following you. And then we began a relationship that way. And and then we became friends and then and we've been supporting each other's stuff ever since. And that all started because I just saw a typo and wanted to help him out. That's it. I didn't ask him for anything, you know, I didn't ask him for advice. And then I didn't ask him, you know, to help me out with my Twitter growth. Nothing like that. I just literally said, Here's a typo. You, you want to fix it, and that's it. And he was really grateful that some some stranger on the internet cared about cared about him enough to reach out to him and point out a, a little typo. And I've done that several times. Like sometimes being a copywriter, like I get a bit of an itch when I see someone with really really poor copy or with something that's obviously wrong. Like if I like that person, I'll send a DM and say, "Oh, you know, you should think about doing this because it might lead to this." And they're always super grateful for the advice and sometimes it, it leads to more work and sometimes it doesn't and, and if it doesn't it's okay you know because like i said twitter karma is real like if you're just being valuable people will talk about and that's the other thing like people on twitter gossip man if you have a good reputation and you treat let's say i treat this particular account very well then he starts having a conversation with another account and then they're like oh um you know what do you think of that eddie guy now, if, I'm, if I talk a lot of shit in the DMs, then I'm going to get a bad reputation, right? And they're going to start talking about me because Twitter is like, it's, it's a big world, but it's also a small world, especially if you're in like so-called money Twitter. It's a very small community. People talk. You know, when you're DMing people, keep in mind that people like can screen cap that. Yeah. And they will. <laughs> and they will. You know, at, at the end of this conversation, if I go on and say, oh, yeah, I just did a podcast with Yannick, but you know, I, I really don't like him and blah 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 in a DM. You know, that's just not a good thing to do, and it might get back to you later on, and it's bad for your reputation. You know. Final question: What do people need to do for you to retweet them? How do I think of retweets? I think 
and this is, I'm sorry, this is a very, very broad answer, but really anything that makes me think about something that I hadn't, in a way I hadn't thought about before, anything that gives me, for me, the way I retweet is based on perspective changes. So it could be the exact same platitude, but it's written in a way that makes me think of it from a different angle. I'll retweet it. And that's just not for people who comment under my tweets. That's just for tweets that I see on timeline. Yeah. So for me, it's perspective change. Other people have different theories about this. They think, oh, people retweet things that make them look good. So if I retweet your tweet, it's because by virtue of me retweeting your tweet, it makes me look good. That's what people say. But to me personally, I retweet things that give me a change of perspective. Thank you, Eddie. This was a lot of fun. Where can people find you? Best way is, well, on Twitter, <laughs> at War on Weakness. Give me a follow and, uh, and come say hi. Cool. Thanks, man. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week. Thank you.